Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by one of the founders of the Singular Fortean Society. He is a Fortean investigator, researcher, and the author of two books, The Lake Michigan Mothman and Strange Tales of the Impossible. Tobias Whalen, welcome to the pod, man. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, you, you've covered, you investigated for a, a few years the the Lake Michigan Mothman stuff, and and with your new book, it, you focused on a bunch of different stories that kind of you know focus a little bit on uh, the the other aspects of high strangeness and stuff, and how they maybe maybe re- related in a, a bit. Mm-hmm. So. Why did you go in that direction for the second book instead of like, you know, maybe focusing on one singular subject? Why is that idea of these uh, different types of phenomenon being related? What, what, why is that important, do you think? Sure. Well, you know, so with the, the, the Lake Michigan Mothman, the, the impetus behind that book really was that I felt people needed to know what had gone into that investigation in, in particular, you know, because there's a lot of misinformation out and, uh, and people didn't seem to understand what the, the sort of reality of the investigation was. And so um, I didn't really have that issue with Strange Tales. Uh, you know, that, uh, that for me was more of an, an exploration of uh, various paranormal phenomena, which is sort of what the Singular Fortean Society is, is, is all about, you know, in terms of, of viewing things uh, holistically sort of through that, that Fortean lens. Um, and so something that I've, I've just noticed over the, the, the years, and certainly I'm not the first person to notice this, you know, like this is, this is something people have been talking about for, for decades. But, you know, there are a number of uh, commonalities um, between uh, various phenomena that I, I, I don't think should go ignored. And, and so certainly um, in my uh, investigations, like I, I had noticed some of these, these commonalities and I, I felt like... Um, there was something I could contribute to the conversation by talking about these cases that, uh, that I had personally been a part of investigating um, and, uh, and, and sort of noting the, the, the commonalities uh, between them, you know, so for anybody listening who hasn't read the, the, the book or anything, you know, one of the, the things that, that stuck out to me the most really was uh, sort of this theme of nighttime visitation. Um, you know, and it, it didn't really seem to matter if uh, the phenomenon that the witness was describing was, you know, uh, alien abduction or uh, ghosts and hauntings or something even weirder, frankly. Um, often, you know, this is something that for whatever reason would happen to people uh, while they were in their uh, beds, you know, usually uh, either asleep and being woken up or, or maybe uh, just in bed, frankly, uh, so, you know, sometimes reading, just whatever, what, what, what people do in bed. Right. Uh, or, you know, sometimes uh, just at night, you know, maybe they're, they're, uh, you know, uh, relaxing or, or something similar. And, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things where I know people are talking about it. Um, I don't think they're talking about it enough. And, uh, and, and certainly, you know, like I said, people weren't uh, talking about the specific cases that I had investigated, and, uh, and and so I thought that there really was something that um, that that we could add to the the, the conversation by uh, by um, sort of exploring those those themes. And they're definitely important because you know, especially if you look into the 
you know, UFO stuff, uh, as I have for the last few years, is that often in high, st- high strangeness cases, you'll see crossover with uh, this person had, uh, you know, really intense alien abduction experience. And now they have a uh, poltergeist like phenomenon in their home. So like there is there is those similarity, those uh, common factors that seem to pop up in, in multiple different cases. And, you know, um, in, in just the way that strangeness seems to just attract strangeness, you know, <laughs> Sure. No, I mean that's that that's a, a really good point, and it's 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 something that I've I've uh, encountered. You know, which you you saying that reminded me specifically of uh, sort of the the preponderance of um, psi uh, uh, phenomena that people will report, um, not alongside other events necessarily, but sort of in in addition to, and they don't usually talk about it unless you ask. So, you know, of course, when I'm I'm, I'm interviewing a a witness, I always want to, you know, ask if they've experienced anything else strange, uh, you know, either around the time of the event or just before or just after, or really at any time in their entire life. And quite often what you'll get is people will talk about having uh, psychic experiences. And, and again, it's not necessarily related to the event itself, but it's something that they've experienced in their life, um, which, you know, I've, I've always found very interesting, uh, you know, especially in terms of what that might mean, you know, um, you know, there, there are, are several possibilities, of course, you know, whether or not, um, yeah, assuming psi and, and, and psychic abilities exist, like as long as we can assume that for the, 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 for, for this particular argument, um, assuming that they do, then, you know, you have to wonder sort of what that means uh, and why people might experience them um, and also experience these other things, be they, you know, UFOs or, or, or uh, you know, alien abduction or, you know, ghosts and hauntings, uh, cryptid sightings, whatever. And, uh, you know, there, there are several possibilities, you know, like maybe if you're psychic, uh, you're more likely to see something like this because you're able to, you know, sort of tap into a, a, a another uh, a level of perception, or maybe people who are psychic uh, are just paid more attention to by the otherworldly for some reason, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, they're of interest uh, for, for whatever reason, for some, some alien uh, uh, indecipherable motivation. Um, you know, uh, there, there's just, there are so many possibilities there that are, are so interesting that I, I think that we really need to ask those, those questions. And I think that like, if you just interview a witness, you know, say they've seen a UFO or something and you don't ask them about anything other than that specific experience, you miss all of this other data, like all of this other interesting stuff that might have happened to them that may or may not be relevant. But if you don't ask, you'll just never know. Yeah, absolutely. And and it and it bleeds into the stories that uh, we're bringing the listeners today, because uh, definitely in the first one, if uh, another researcher hadn't gone and asked this woman, uh, this main witness here, like those kind of questions, we, we never would have had them uh, to begin with. And that's nothing against, uh, you know, Ted Blocher doing the uh, investigating up front. But it was just it was just like, uh, you know. There's a singular event here, but okay, the, the, this one guy goes and interviews her and, oh, no, there's a whole history, a life history of events here. But 
we're talking about a couple of stories from New York, uh, obscure stories that, um, you know, uh, to the uh, UFO investigator, they, they might be familiar with. But uh, the first case that we're talking about is the New Berlin landing. And I think what's unique about this case is that uh, with most landing cases, it seems like the witness maybe observes uh, uh, this landed craft for a few seconds or maybe 10 minutes. It's never four hours, but we're getting four hours with this one incident. And it's just like, how bad are these aliens at fixing their own vehicles? <laughs> no, I, I was asking myself the same thing. And they're, they're walking, they've got toolboxes. They can't, they take this part out and they can't seem to get it back in right like forever. It took them like five tries. Yes. I just felt sorry for them at a certain point. I, I did. I, I did the same. So what's interesting up front about this case is the way that it comes to Ted, Ted Blocher is that essentially the the witness she's given the 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 probably one of the worst pseudonyms i've ever read in mary merriweather (laughs) yes but she was visiting a friend named charlotte ronald and they had both had a, a sighting of some lights near she lived near new berlin at the time too so uh she sees these weird lights and she starts talking about an earlier sighting that she had in 1964. And this gets uh, back to another researcher named uh, Lexma Bain, who then tells Ted Blocher about this story. But Mary, at first, she was kind of reticent to talk about her story, but, uh, you know, eventually she spills the beans. And um, to, to give the listener kind of a little background. So New Berlin is uh, it's in Southern New York, uh, I've never been there. It's a very small community of about 3,000 people or so. It's near Binghamton, which is about as southern as you can get in the state uh, before you, you head into, like, Pennsylvania. And um, Mary Merriweather, she attended Ithaca College, which I've had friends that have attended Ithaca College. She majored in music, and she married a, a guy named Richard, who I don't think... Richard is a pseudonym, which is odd to me, but like there's no last name, which is fine, I guess. But uh, it, just another like interesting, uh, weird thing to an already weird case. So she attends school. Uh, Richard is a chemical engineer. She gets married rather young. She was about 20 years old when she got married and they moved to Syracuse where um uh in 1964 that that's that's where they were living so uh this particular incident takes place on november 25th 1964 it's around thanksgiving and mary was staying with her mother-in-law while her husband and her father-in-law were off on this hunting trip on this particular night the skies were pretty clear which Mary noted as odd because it had been snowing a lot in the area around that time. But this particular evening, um, it was a relatively clear night. And she was having trouble sleeping, so she turned on the TV, found that uh, there was nothing interesting on TV. So she just decided to pour herself some ginger ale and stand outside for a minute. It was around 1230, 
And she did notice that the moon, it was just very bright that night. But uh, she noticed at one point this star that seemed to be just like falling out of the sky. And it arced across it in a in kind of a strange way like even for you know uh, meteors that are are seen just the the way that the flight path of this light seemed very odd to her and then she noticed another light and instead of arcing it was just kind of coming straight down she noted how it came over the road there which is uh, route 80 and it kind of followed this brook it followed around this hillside a little bit until it seemed like it was about to settle down. Now, where this incident occurred, um, it, it was essentially across the street from Mary was from where Mary was staying, uh, and it was about like thirteen hundred or so yards away, or or about one point one kilometers. She was caught by the brightness of this light, um, which was like brighter than anything that she you know could really wrap her brain around at that time. And not only that, uh, whatever it was that was creating this light. It was giving off a, like a hum and it kind of maintained this continuous pitch. And then this light started to, it, it just hovered kind of close to the mountainside, moving a little closer to the road. And that's when one car came by and it kind of just uh, uh, turned and, and a second car actually shortly after that came by and it stopped on the shoulder because it, it seemed pretty obvious that it could see this object, whatever it was. And that's when the object started to move towards Mary. So essentially it had to cross the street in order to do cross the road in order to do that. And when it did, the, the folks in this car just uh, they, they panicked, they sped off. As anybody would in, in, in a situation like that, I, I, I couldn't blame them. You know, you're you pull over trying to get a better view of this thing and it's coming closer. Um, not a fan. I would have gone full Mulder. I, I would have ran straight <laughs> at it, just sprinted directly at that thing. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, that's that's definitely fair. Uh, hopefully you're you're not involved. You're not encountering the government agents that are, you know, going to uh put you in prison for a little bit or or whatever you know it that i i respect that tobias i totally respect that <laughs> yeah i mean you know fingers crossed for like no black oil or anything but uh oh god yeah, yeah. You, you just you, you gotta find out so the second car speeds off and and mary kind of gets a little nervous she starts to back up towards the the porch she kind of like walked out a little bit into the into the driveway and uh when she saw this object moving towards her she backed up onto the porch and this is when mary's mother-in-law actually started to walk outside wondering what the heck she was doing out there and then she sees this object and she's like nope she pieces out she's going back inside <laughs> mary claimed that she felt like it was watching her like whatever whoever was on board this thing it had eyes on her it was coming towards her and then um it proceeded back across over the road and it was kind of following this brook after a period of time, it settles onto like kind of the, the area where this occurred, there's, there's 
lot of farm field, but it's also seems kind of like at a slope in a, in a little bit. It was it's a little confusing in the reading because there's like a topographical map, but where this occurs, there's kind of a a, a slight hill, and, and I'll include the uh, image of this in the on social media and show notes and stuff like that. But it slowly hovers over this hillside, and then Mary actually goes back inside the house and she starts to view this object, whatever it is, through a set of binoculars. She said it was kind of hard to see at first because the light was just so bright. So she tips it up and down and she can finally, you know, get a pretty decent view of what she's looking at. So uh, whatever is creating this light, it seems to be coming from the bottom of some kind of structure. And she can see that whatever this is, is resting on some kind of legs. At this point, she starts to see shadows uh, moving around not far from the light. And that's when she starts to notice a bunch of uh, figures. And there were about half a dozen of them. They had this like light colored skin. Uh, they were wearing these dark um, kind of like diving suits. Like, like skin the... divers wetsuits. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, they looked very human. I think the only distinguishing feature of them is the fact that, uh, according to Mary in, in the, uh, reference points that she had from like the bushes that were kind of near where they had landed is that these things were in uh, like incredibly tall between like six and a half feet to eight feet tall. So aside from that, these things are very, they're, they're very human looking. And I don't think she mentioned a lot of detail because you know, I, I don't think she could make out a, a, no. a lot of detail. And so when 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 they get into it, and I found this this very interesting, um, you know, they, they, she basically talks about how they were built like men, like their heads were on necks, which were on shoulders, <laughs> yes. etc. I was like, well, thank you. That, that's very helpful. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, otherwise, and you know, they, they really sort of are described as, as almost like silhouettes, but then they could make out some, some coloration, right? So you've got like the dark wetsuit, but then you can see where sort of the suit ends and you, and then you can see their bare hand and that looked lighter. Um, and I don't know how much of that is just uh, assumption too, you know? Um, Cause it, again, it didn't seem like there's a, a lot of detail that, that she could make out. No, she didn't really want to get closer. She wanted to observe things, I think, kind of to put her mother-in-law at ease. But um, also, in the way that they talked about this case, her and her mother-in-law kind of go back and forth about whether they should call the police, the military, or something like that. And then they think against it because they're like, well, we don't want to interrupt them. They're just, you know... (laughs) fixing their vehicle or something so right they didn't want to cause a fuss what was interesting too is it wasn't just the mother-in-law who's really reluctant to go outside um her dog didn't want to go outside like refused to go outside um and then of course once the thing takes off like the 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 dog is just reportedly fine which you know i always find that interesting you know you don't hear enough about how people's pets react to stuff like this honestly yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, dog wanted nothing to do with it. A bunch of these figures, they started to carry out these like kind of rectangular boxes. They were about three to, to four feet long and then about a couple feet wide. 
the way that Mary describes these things, like any of these things, it doesn't seem like these beings are would would struggle to lift them on their own. It just seems like they're being very careful about what they're doing. There is at, at one point she sees uh, three of them lift this. Uh, it's a kind of like a two foot by one foot rectangular kind of smaller rectangular thing that she believes is kind of the the motor or whatever makes this thing run. They she, they take it out. They put it on the ground like ever so gently. But uh, yeah, just a another odd feature of this thing it's just they don't seem like they're struggling but hey let's just be careful with this stuff take it easy with this you don't want to break anything (laughs) (laughs) right and she talks about and this is another interesting detail and again i don't know how much of it is sort of like her interpretation and and how much of it is 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 accurate description but she talks about them using tools that she recognized like wrenches and screwdrivers and and things that uh that uh reminded her of the tools that like her dad would use to work on farm machinery and stuff and and how similar their behavior seemed to be to like just regular people that she had observed you know working mechanically on things before um and it's so interesting to me because I, I, I again, and I, I feel like I, I'm, I keep beating this drum, but it, it, it is what it is. You know, it's difficult to sort of tell in this this narrative how much of it is um, just her uh, sort of trying to make sense of the situation and how much of it is really replicating this otherwise like relatively mundane human task. Yeah, like it's it's a Friday night. The guys are working on their vehicle. It just so happens that the vehicle is, you know, from someplace else. And they just kind of need <laughs> to set down uh, on somebody's farm and just kind of, you know, take care of business. That's, um, you know, that's the nature of this weird, weird case. At this point, as Mary's noticing all of these folks doing whatever it is they're doing, her mother-in-law says, oh, there's another one. So another object, it approaches from the southwest and it kind of settles down not far from where the first one did. Maybe, you know, like 50 or so feet away. And a group of five or so additional figures walk out of this craft and join the others. And at this point, we're talking about anywhere from like five to like a dozen uh, figures she, she couldn't totally uh, figure out how many there were at, at, at a time but like that's kind of what she gets uh, for a number and down the hill a little ways from where this craft was and 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 like the description and the way that it she draws it is, is kind of confusing because she she says it's like a circular type of craft or it seems circular with the way that they were moving around this thing. It was kind of like they were sidestepping around it in kind of a um, like a half circular pattern or so. But when she draws it, it it looks like. Uh, how would I describe this? So, <laughs> it like, gave me a headache to look at. Like, I was trying to figure out like what that thing was supposed to be. Right. It it looks like, um, 
it kind of it kind of has the same vibes as like a um i don't know like a road sign or something like that it's got it looks like it's got two legs on it and this like flat structure on top so it's kind of stonehenge in a way but it's like made of metal so yeah it's just if that's a craft that they flew in what uh i it's yeah it's very confusing in the way that uh, a lot of things are confusing about this case just in the fact that i kind of wish she had gotten closer (laughs) (laughs) you know they've they've pulled out this power source and from down the hill a little ways mary can see these uh, about two figures and they have this what she describes as cable and this cable uh, it, it seems like they're cutting it and later on when she goes up into that area and she searches where they were cutting this cable she eventually finds a piece of it a small piece of it that mysteriously goes and and you know missing or is isn't misplaced. that convenient why, why does that seem to happen all the time if i went up onto a hill where I had seen some kind of otherworldly craft parked like 10 minutes beforehand. And I found a piece of this like, well, she described it as like flat aluminum strips inside of this like cloth coating. And it had these fantastic properties, basically. She's talking about how like, you know, it's super light and you would try to bend it, but you couldn't bend it and it would just go back to its shape. So if I found some kind of super alien metal, like where I know a UFO had just been, I mean, I would have like, I put that in a briefcase and that I handcuffed to myself and then just, I don't know, transferred it to a safety deposit box, something. But instead, like, they threw it in the back of a closet and now they don't know where it is. <laughs> yeah. It's the, frustrating. It is incredibly frustrating, this kind of strange ambivalence to the events that have just taken place, despite the fact that you decided to take four and a half hours to watch whatever it was that they were doing you you're that interested but you're not interested enough to be a little more careful with the the strange piece of cable that they left behind and and what's interesting about this uh you know quote-unquote cable is that it's wrapped in kind of she described it as like a brown kind of paper but like there are these like tiny little strips of aluminum on the inside and or, or what seems like aluminum but the problem was is that whenever she would try to bend them they just wouldn't give there was no give to this cable so uh, apparently they've got some really dope cables that uh we could probably uh, you know use like why not like share that stuff with us but no it, it went missing in in the random closet in new berlin new york never to be seen again yeah just no way could that metal ever be important you know just don't don't even worry about it who cares no it's not it's not a big deal you know this kind of stuff happens all the time so you know (laughs) they just kind of consider for a little bit do you think we should call the government do you think we should you know call the police like or something, but like it, it's it, it's very human to see a bunch of aliens or whatever working on their their craft and just think like, 
no, we don't want to disturb them. Just let them work on their thing. Like that to me is something I just can't get over is how, how human this all seems like, and how, uh, you know, there's like a, there's a physicality to this case that is utterly fascinating, but just the human elements from the witnesses that kind of set aside what, an alien encounter could be or an encounter with whatever these beings are. It's just, I, I I don't think I'll ever be able to stop thinking about that because it is something that you see from time to time uh, in some cases with beings that are more human looking than not, but it's just like they're interlopers at this point. They're, they're voyeurs watching a bunch of aliens fix their vehicles. And it's, I, I kind of want to see like a, a, a Grease musical now based on this incident. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the ufological equivalent of rubbernecking like an accident on the highway. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they're just, they're just watching these guys change their space tire for like four hours. And I get why they didn't want to call the police or anything. Like I've spoken to, to quite a few witnesses and, um, calling the police, I mean, especially uh, uh, in the, the, the sort of modern day, you know, uh, given this was decades ago. But, you know, it's not unusual for people not to want to do that. Um, and it's usually for a pretty similar reason, not necessarily because they're worried about, you know, interrupting these beings, but because they're like, look, what are the police going to do? Like, what good could possibly come from me involving more people in this? You know, especially people with like, authority who will make official reports that people could then look up and use to ruin my life you know so i (laughs) i I get it you have to ask yourself if stefan mikulak had been here he would have gone up there and tried to help those people because you know he's having his incident in falcon lake and he literally goes up to the ufo once he sees the satch open he just says hey yankee boys you need some help so i think <laughs> stefan mikulak would be a huge help to these people <laughs> oh definitely I, that's what i'm saying I, and, and that's something like for me um, you know, I, I try, obviously, like if I'm actually talking to a, a, a witness or, or, or something, I'm not going to sit there and berate them for why they didn't run up to the, the UFO. Um, but, you know, for, for me, uh, just as who I am, you know, like it is incredibly frustrating where um, you get these situations where there doesn't seem to be any danger or, or anything uh, where, yeah, I absolutely would would want to just go up there and just see what's going on. I mean, it you know, it's basically across the street. So at that point, it's kind of my business. You know what I mean? Like if somebody, (laughs) I'm just saying, if somebody's car like broke down in front of my house, I'd go out and see if they needed anything. You know, if somebody's just parked in front of my house for too long, I'll go out and see if like they need something like, you know, it's just uh, that, that part of it to me, um, I don't know. It's just incredibly frustrating. There's, there's no other, like there's no other way for me to describe it. For, the next three hours, these figure, figures are all the like she describes their movements exactly like a mechanic. There are people getting underneath this thing. There are people down on their knees uh, working on something. And it's about four thirty when they start to begin really working together as a team. They were kind of just doing individual things at that point. And 
that's when she notices that there seems to be one figure among them that is kind of like a leader of some uh, of sorts. Maybe, you know, like a supervisor, somebody who knows what needs to get done. And they're making random hand gestures, pointing people this way, that way and uh, to to what they need to do. So uh, at, at about 430 together, they they picked up this object that is you know on the ground this small two by one foot box and they lift it up toward the bottom of the craft and uh you know judging by the moments uh the the movements that they were making it seemed as if they were trying to screw something back in but they were struggling with it this gets into the the problem of whatever they're doing they seem to be bad at it so uh at least at first so <laughs> they set this object back down on the ground. Some of them are growing a little more frustrated because they're like, uh, you know, sun's going to be coming up any, any, any minute now. I mean, yeah, they probably got a couple hours before it does, but uh, you know, they, they're just trying desperately to get this uh, device back up into the bottom of this thing. And, and eventually they lift it back up and they start to maneuver it around as carefully as they can. And once it's back in place, the, the light at the bottom of the craft just grows intensely more bright. And the, uh, the men seem to collect their tools. And at about 4.55 a.m., the second craft that had joined them departed upwards fast. And it kind of just uh, arced away, disappearing. And then the first object... Lifts into the air slowly, rising in kind of a fit in the start. And it eventually shoots off in the same direction. The next afternoon, Mary decides she's going to wander over there. She she has her mother-in-law in the car. She realizes that she has to cross through like some barbed wire fence. So she goes to the people that own this property. She goes and asks them permission to go up there and take a look around. And they give it what to What was her. that conversation like? Mm- yeah, you like, know, they don't like they don't really get into it. But was she just like, so long story short, saw a UFO on your property last night. Going to go check it out. Is that OK? You know, like what what right. do you say in that situation? I, 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 I wish they would have told us. I have a hankering for more details. And I don't know if this woman is still alive, but if she was, I would go and pester her like I, oh, I'm sure. wanting to know more. Just just wanting to know more. So. Uh, she wanders over there. She crosses through this barbed wire fence and through berry bushes. And, um, you know, there are pastures and hay fields and such. And the area where this incident took place, she notices like these, uh, three cone shaped marks that are set in like a triangular formation. Each leg is about 15 to like 20 feet apart or so. And whatever these made these marks, they dug into the ground deep enough to suggest that whatever it was supporting was decently heavy. And she mentions that they actually ended up breaking uh, some like rocks in the area, too, with with this device, this object. So these marks were about 14 inches wide and they were about 18 inches deep. So. Yeah, whatever these were, it was extremely heavy. Uh, just did research on the Veronish landing, and one of the things that the researchers, in that case, the investigators, determined was that the object that had landed in South Park in Veronish was about 11 tons. So 
something that sets its marks, you know, you know, without knowing what the composition of the soil is over there, but just the fact that it, the marks are 18 inches deep. This is extremely heavy, just hugely heavy in the area. Kind of just like really right next to where this object was, there was actually some kind of worn down grass, grass that had uh, looked like it had been walked all over. And in the area where the men cut the cable, she found it was a three inch piece of it. It was wrapped in brown paper and inside she could see aluminum colored strips. She tried to crumple them, but they just they wouldn't budge. So. Yeah, naturally, as things do in paranormal cases, you know, the cable, it just, you know, it just disappeared. It just, uh, <laughs> you know, it just went away. So that happens. It's an yeah. alien metal. For all we know, it teleported or like evaporated or something. And the other like frustrating thing about this case, too, is, you know, she goes all the way out to that hill. Like she's determined, like she's going to go check it out. She even, you know, like put herself out there, had to go talk to the owner just to, to, to get out to this, this landing site. Did she take any pictures? Of course not. Nope. Of course not. Not even one. Or I mean, not any that she mentioned anyway. Um, although I, I have to say, considering what happened to that cable, I feel like if she had taken some pictures and just lost them, we'd know about it. So I have right. to assume that, she just, they didn't take any. I, yeah. which, and I, I, I can't figure that out either. No, it, that kind of, it gets into that kind of ambivalence towards UFOs after you've had your incidents or even during your incidents. Like, it's just a thing. It happened, you know, no big deal. So <laughs> Dr. Bertold E. Schwartz, he, he was a psychiatrist. He was involved with, uh, f- organizations like APRO, I, I believe he was involved with MUFON at a point, like kind of a really prestigious guy when you look into his credentials and was involved in a number of monumental cases uh, investigating, uh, including the, you know, Herbert Hopkins men in black encounter, whether you choose to believe that actually happened or not based on, you know, the blog post that Herbert Hopkins nephew wrote in like 2008. I get it. They were a very eccentric family, and uh, apparently his his son and daughter-in-law were swingers or whatever. I don't know. It was a, there was a lot of weirdness in that blog post, but um, uh, definitely a prestigious guy. And uh, when Stefan Mikulak had actually visited the Mayo Clinic, I, I think it was like in 1968 after he had his, his encounter with the UFO, it was Bertold E. Schwartz that helped him get his medical records from the Mayo Clinic because they had misfiled them. So uh, definitely a prestigious figure. He interviewed Mary Merriweather, and apparently Mary has had a history of very strange incidents in her life. So uh, the, the first interesting thing that he notes is that her lineage can be traced back to the uh, the early colonies in Massachusetts, and she actually has one family member that was acquitted of being a witch. So, you know, the strangeness goes way back, which which is cool. I dig that. Totally, totally cool. But it's a collection of just very strange uh, things. One, Mary has a fraternal twin 
which she claims to share a, a psychic connection with. Quote, one of us would answer a question that the other twin had not asked verbally. This happened many times. We also seemed to know when one of us was hurt or in danger. So uh, cool that she's got a psychic connection with her brother. I dig that. When she was contemplating marrying her husband, the spirit of her grandfather, who she was uh, extremely close with, appeared to her in the dining room of her parents' house. Quote, it was a white light that spread out, and as it spread out, I could see him standing there in white robes. I was surprised. He was smiling at me. I interpreted it as being he approved of George, which is the name that they call Richard, and uh, it, it was a comfort to me, end quote. Here's a question. Yeah. Did he wear, like, robes in life? Like, was that normal clothing for him? Is Did he get robes later? Because who, who wears robes? Right. This is not the only time that Mary has had an encounter with her grandfather. And each time that she saw him, he was wearing white robes. And from what I can understand, white robes were not part of his normal attire. But So he wasn't like an ancient Greek philosopher or something? Okay. We can, we can speculate that he totally right. was. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, um, at the age of 15 on Christmas Day, she had a severe asthma attack in association with bronchial pneumonia. And at one point, under extreme duress and unable to breathe, she had an out-of-body experience. Quote, there was a light off in the distance. It was growing larger. And in that light, I could see people working, which is kind of interesting. People working there. People working on this craft. They were dressed in white robes. My grandfather was there, and he was also dressed in a white robe. He seemed to be in the forefront, closer to me than the people who were working in the background. He seemed to be waiting for me, but he was not smiling. I stopped halfway between where I was going and where I had come from. There was music, such as I had never heard in all my life. I looked back and thought, dead, you know. I turned around and looked back at, again at Grandpa and where I was going. Then a man stepped up behind me and took hold of my right shoulder with his right hand and wouldn't let me turn around. I started to turn look at him, and I could feel the light from behind me as if it were emanating from the person he said to me, quote, You may go there, death, or you may go back, life. But if you go back, I have work for you to do, and your life won't be easy. Okay. Okay, that's a bit intense <laughs> well, for a near-death. Yeah. Uh, I made up my mind to come back, and Grandpa seemed to turn around and go off. I came directly back at once. Next, I was standing beside the bed, and I was getting into myself. It hurt to get back in my body. When I got back into my body, there was a little struggle to start breathing again, but I began. I've never forgotten that experience. I don't think anybody would forget that experience. Just saying. No, well, she forgot about that alien cable pretty quickly, but <laughs> no, sorry, I just, I can't get over that. But uh, yeah. no, okay, all kidding aside, there are some really interesting elements to this, this near death mm -hmm. Experience, you know, like you've got okay. Again, everybody's wearing robes for for some reason. There's music, um, mm -hmm. and I I think that like 
because we'll, we find out later that she's a fairly religious person. And I, I think that there is an interpretive element to this experience, you know, where, uh, and, and, and I'm not saying that to invalidate it. I'm not saying that she, she made it up or hallucinated it necessarily. But I think um, in sort of dealing with something, uh, a, a phenomenon, any phenomenon that that exists uh, sort of purely uh, or, or, or something that, that we experience really sort of purely through consciousness, like you would have to experience a, a near death uh, experience. Right. I think that there may not be any real, you know, physical uh, uh, sort of, of, of validity to that. Like no, no physical substance, I guess, is better. So when she experiences it, you know, what, what she sees is sort of uh, colored by her expectation, right? So like if she has this idea that people wear white robes in heaven, if she's interacting with her, her grandfather's ghost, maybe that's how she sees him. You know, maybe somebody else would see him differently. Maybe somebody else would have had the, the, their near-death experience in this situation uh, you know, be be very different as well. And certainly there are lots of, of cases of, of NDEs where people, you know, sort of describe similar elements, but, you know, they're they're ultimately different in, in those kinds of details. And so I, I find that that very interesting sort of just from that that perspective of uh, of, of these as um, experiential phenomena, right? Where I really think that there is some 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 interactivity, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the phenomenon, uh, the phenomenon provides some of it and we provide the rest sort of filling in those gaps. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it makes you wonder if when she was experiencing her UFO experience, if her perception, you know, played into that, if, if, yeah, if they were, you know, if you believe that UFOs could be, you know, psychic projections or like, uh, you know, Greg Bishop has his co-creation hypothesis, the idea that whatever these things are, they can kind of go into your head and, and kind of pick and choose how they want to present themselves to you or, or whatever, you know, you want to believe in this situation. I think it definitely lends credence to the idea that that could be happening in her UFO experience as it was happening in her near death experience. And, Mary is a very interesting person because she she has, uh, you know, these different type of experiences. Uh, she has, you know, she moves into a couple places that are, you know, haunted and she experiences, uh, you know, some kind of like light um poltergeist like phenomenon with doors opening and, and closing and hearing hearing sounds and stuff like that she talks about how after uh her kids are born she kind of has the telepathic link with her kids that she does with her brother and uh there is one particular point where she talks about how she joined the mormon church and when she joined the mormon church she believes that uh, the, the way that she put it was that she believed that nobody around her, nothing bad could happen to anybody that was close to her or around her. Um, and like that, she was just this like, it's almost like she was a good luck charm in a way, which, uh, after she joined, but you, you can't yeah. gloss over the, the best part of her joining where she says, when I was investigating the church, I spoke to the elders about uh, it, and by it she means her, her UFO experience, and she said she became a Mormon because the church is true. And while she wouldn't elaborate on that, she felt that her conversion 
uh, was was unrelated to her her UFO I- experience. And then she goes on uh, to say, "Where is it? Or where? Or maybe this was uh, this was the doctor talking about it? Uh, how um, she's not a superstitious person, but she does believe we're in the millennium and Armageddon is approaching." Yeah, so she's not superstitious, but she does believe that. Yeah, like where where does your jumping off point start? Where does it start? Where does it end? Where does the um, weirdness get to be too weird? Uh, for me, her her Mormon experience was just kind of a little strange and. I understand you got, you kind of got to take it at face value. That's what you get with right. this case. And, um, people you know, have beliefs and that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, at one point, Mary Merriweather actually went through some hypnosis. Nothing new really came out about her encounter with these beings, other than the fact that they had lighter skin, something that she wasn't really able to confirm up front, but, through hypnosis, it was confirmed that they had lighter skin. So that is that is what we have with the New Berlin landing. But when we're talking about the strangeness, things are about to get even, even stranger. At a home in Woodstock, New York, Woodstock, uh, you know, in this, in this particular case, it took place in 1966. It was investigated in the 1970s, and it's a case involving a young couple uh, that were known as the Carriers, which is another pseudonym. And it revolves around this home that they rented uh, kind of on the outskirts of Woodstock, New York. So Woodstock is a community that is built up on the arts. It's like arts heavy, and it kind of reminds me of my hometown, uh, Saranac Lake, a little bit. Uh, the only difference is Saranac Lake has a bed and breakfast run by Mike Cleland and his partner, which freaks me out every time I think about it. I don't want to think about the owl man running a bed and breakfast in my hometown. But every time that I go there, I have to think about that. So, you know, that is what it is. Uh, I try not to think about it, but it just happens. So the interesting thing about Woodstock, though, it is home to the world's largest kaleidoscope. <laughs> I you know you got to be known for something and like Woodstock yeah it's 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 a music festival but the music festival didn't take place in Woodstock uh it actually took place about an hour away and you can actually go and see live music uh still in that area um it's a place called the uh, Bethel Woods Center for the Arts I think it's a Live Nation facility at this point but where Woodstock and and all of this occurs it's in the Catskills so the Catskills are uh kind of um they're they're part of the Appalachian train because like you know the Appalachian train comes you know all the way from like what like Alabama Georgia and and all the way up into Maine so like in the southern portions of New York you get you do get uh the Appalachians can connect to that so there is kind of a this superstitious feeling to the mountains down there and 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 in the way that Bertold Schwartz writes about this case there are you know local historians have documented that the the local uh, First Nations tribes would uh 
try to be a little more mindful when they were in this particular area because it kind of had a draw to it. It would draw people to the mountains. But at the time of this incident, Mr. Carrier, he was a computer systems analyst, which in 1967 is is a crazy thing to think about because, uh, you know, just trying That's to... That's the most impressive part of the story for me. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Like I read that and I was like, I didn't even know that existed in 1966. Like he was a what? Same. It's just a uh, computer systems analyst. Don't know what that means, but uh, pretty baller to have that title in 1966. And uh, Miss Carrier had uh, graduated valedictorian from junior college and they just rented this uh, and to see the pictures of it, it is a very small cabin. Uh, you know, near Overlook Mountain. So the area around the heart, the house was marked by open fields and bushes along with some nearby forests. It's it's kind of par for the course uh, when you get past in New York City and such. Um, the activity began in the spring of 1966, and uh, it started uh, when they started to notice these green lights from their living room window. And on another night, um, as this phenomenon was starting to become more frequent, they had a friend from Kingston and Kingston is nearby. It's uh, probably like, I think like 20 miles away from Woodstock or so. And this friend was coming up for a visit and all three of them observed this green light, this whatever it was, and it flew close to his car and whatever it was, they, they couldn't it wasn't a, a, a light so much as a sound, which is, which is weird. Like the, the, the way that they talked about this thing is that it was almost like they could see it by hearing it. So it was a high pitched whining sound and they could kind of judge where this thing was when it was like flying. So it would fly near his car and then, uh, you know, it would be off in a field, but, uh, because they could hear it, they could also just kind of see it and tell where it was. There was a moment when an, an actual plane flew by over this area, and they noted that when it did, the sound kind of dissipated. But once it, uh, you know, flew off, the sound came back. So already we've got some very weird sounds, and it, it seemed to become a common occurrence around this house. At three in the afternoon on one one day, uh, Miss uh, Carrier could hear the sound uh, just like above the roof. It seemed like just like barely above her head. And there was another girl that was living in the cabinet this time. Uh, it was one of her friends. And uh, they uh, it, it kind of prompted them to go outside. But when they did... They uh, they couldn't hear, hear anything from outside. So whatever it was, it was like it was above them, but not too far above them. It was just the spatial parts of the story are very strange because it's just it seems like they're it's just like physically above you, but it's not inside the same house. It, it's just like it's very confusing in the way that. Uh, they're experiencing this because I think they're they have trouble kind of putting it into perspective at times too. Well, there's a sort of like selective element as mm -hmm. well uh, <clears throat> to the the uh, experience where like 
She talks about uh, one night, you know, a strange thing happened. There's this terrifically annoying sound over the uh, driveway, and it seems like it's six feet over her head. And so she asks her husband, and he's like, I don't hear that. And then she asks, like, her friend, and she was like, no, I don't don't hear that either. And then, and that apparently was like three o'clock in in, in the afternoon. And then later they're sitting around TV, uh, they're sitting around the the, the television, and, um, and suddenly, like the the sound changed, like the sound of the television. I I guess like the pitch goes up, and then she's like, "Well, can you hear that?" And her friend was like, "Well, yes, obviously I can. I can hear that the TV sounds weird now." Um, and it, it's just odd, and it, and the the events sort of go on like that uh, until her husband finally is able to hear this weird noise, and then he's just like, "Oh yeah, okay." So you know, like you're you're not crazy. Like he he just kind of tosses his divorce papers into the trash like <laughs> quietly it's like no no it turns out there is a noise okay great <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like until the sound is just kind of pointed out to them i i think a lot of this activity it's the a lot of the activity itself uh revolved around miss carrier and her presence in this home so uh, whatever it was about her being there, it just kind of seemed to attract the activity. And uh, there's there's a one point uh, when they were hearing the sound, uh, it kind of it kind of sounded like a, a droning oscillation. She and and her friend that was staying with them, they had heard it like kind of depart from the house and into this open field. And they all kind of went to the corner of the house and they put their ear against the wall. And she said that she could make out this like garbled, these garbled sounds um, that made it seem like a collective of voices quote, like mice would talk if they could jabber. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) I don't know, but it was happening like several feet above the ground or something. I think. Yeah. Like, like, like that was another one where like she knows the area the sound is coming from apparently you know to be like hey it sounded like it was coming from like three feet off the ground um but you you know there's nothing there and right. uh yeah i've i found that description so interesting and it's something you know i mean obviously okay yes there there is a comedic element to that because like yeah who the hell says that right mm-hmm. but at, at, at the same time it's so interesting to me because so often, like you'll see people um, who are, you know, like woefully unprepared to deal with any kind of, of seemingly impossible experience like this. Right. And so when it comes time to try to describe that experience to somebody else, like they don't have the vocabulary to even talk about this because it doesn't make any sense. And so, they're trying to put it into terms that one, they can understand. And then two, that they can try to relate to somebody else. And so, yeah, sometimes you get these, these just super wild descriptions of things like, you know, like what, what a bunch of mice would sound like if, if, if mice could jabber or whatever, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And uh, this the, this mice jabbering was later followed up by the sighting of, of another green light. But this time there was a red light that kind of just shot off from this object or, or, or from the light itself. It seemed to separate and then just fly in a different direction. So the strangeness continues. Um, 
And and the voices and these sounds just kind of started to become a, a very common occurrence. And on more than one occasion, she talked about uh, how they would hear kind of a man's voice uh, and like thuds as if someone was walking around, but like not walking around in the house. Well, sometimes walking around the house, but walking on the roof. On one occasion, she was woken by her friend who had just like screamed. She had heard these footsteps on the roof uh, and, you know, she's just you know trying to take a nap and whatever. She tries to dismiss it until, you know, she hears them herself. But before she goes to bed that night, something tries to contact her telepathically. Her mind she says went completely blank and in her head she saw the projection of a large stone face similar to the large stone faces of the Olmec civilization so if you have watched legends of the hidden temple folks like i grew up with and you've seen Olmec, that's basically what she saw it was a projection of a face that looked very similar to that (laughs) and the longer that the carriers stayed in the area and talked to family, the more the, you know, the stories that they heard from uh, the people around them. Um, One cousin had allegedly seen a rocket ship with portholes and visible figures inside. And one uncle had seen the, you know, objects streaking over the mountains, making right hand turns. And, the strangeness is just it's all over this area of Woodstock. So uh, it continues in the carrier home following one experience with the green lights, uh, complete with audible you know, components to this. Their TV set started to pick up a station in Florida out of nowhere. That's yeah. Uh, explain that one cable provider. <laughs> they also talked to a Hopi man who would, uh, he, he was reluctant to visit the carriers at first, but once uh, she opened up about her story, this uh, First Nations man told of seeing strange green lights from his property in Woodstock. Uh, and for him and, and his wife, it became too much that they just basically picked up and moved away. It's very, you know, if you're familiar with stories like Skinwalker Ranch or, um, you know, other like hotspot areas that like have phenomenon that is very invasive. It's very, it's very similar to that uh, is what they're experiencing. Uh, There was another night that she uh, recounted another green light sighting that uh, she shared with a friend. Uh, There were sounds and vibrations created by the object and they were so intense that they made their throats constrict. Um, That's a new one. I've never heard of that before. There was uh, an intense feeling that whatever was above the house at that time was trying to pull them upward as if by a giant magnet. Their legs felt heavy and they laughed uncontrollably. The sensations continued until it just stopped like altogether. As spring as spring turns to summer the carriers were woken up in the middle of the night by a loud voice that sounded like it was coming through a loudspeaker. It said, no, a little to the right over there. This was the first time that they did. They had uh, been prompted to call the air force and the police 
And the police decided to, you know, they, they, they did arrive. And one of the officers simply said, don't be upset. I've seen them myself. That makes it so much worse. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, all the policemen had to do was show up and be like, oh, no, you must have dreamed it or there's nothing here. Don't worry about it. But to be like, don't be upset. I've seen them myself. And, the, and, and like, then what did he do? Just like dematerialize in front of their eyes? Like, that's so creepy. Does not help the situation here. And they started to experience poltergeist-like phenomenon around the house. They would The objects would go missing. Uh, objects that were just laid out would go missing. And outside, they would hear the sound of gravel crunching under the weight of a car, slamming doors, footsteps, uh, a knock against their door. And then uh, it was nothing. Um you know, um, they never saw a person or anything, but it was just like uh, the sounds of a person pulling up into their driveway. They tried to document the lights they were seeing and the sounds that they were hearing with a movie camera. Uh, one night, they they actually heard a staticky voice uh, asking them for help that they tried to document. And not long after they did this, uh, their house was broken into and their camera was stolen. Go figure. Of course it was. Yes. Uh, Their car was breaking down damn near constantly. A friend had even come to visit during uh, his time there. He he had uh, experienced a crackling sound on the gravel, too. And uh, their friend immediately became upset and cried out, that's it. And then there was like a flash of brilliant white light as if somebody had taken their picture. Needless to say, they never heard from that friend again. And it was not long after that that the carriers decided to move to the city and to, you know, put that all behind them. There's another oddity to this case that Bertolt Schwartz notes, and that's, uh, you know, after he has a telephone conversation with the carriers in the office of his recently deceased father, the lights went out without warning. He assures us that even though they're on timers, they weren't meant to go off at 9.30 p.m. They go off at 10. So I feel like he trusted the like efficacy and reliability of 1966 uh, mm-hmm. lamp timers a little yeah. too much when he's telling that, though. So I was like, get going off at 9.30 instead of 10 p.m. or whatever. Like, I mean, OK, I guess. But. You know, it, it's it's not necessarily weird, right? Like, right. I, I, that, like that that was one where I was like, okay, dude. Like, there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have to lump that in with it because, come on. <laughs> uh, it makes you wonder uh, what uh, if the man had like uh, an Amazon account or something like that, and he was really big into leaving ratings on things. What would he have left for the clapper? What would he have said about the clapper? (laughs) One star. Easily manipulated by otherworldly forces. (laughs) That's it. That's it right there. Uh, I need uh, a Bertolt Schwartz fan account that are just like reviews of of things that can be easily manipulated by the psychic forces out there. Yeah. That's it for you, folks. That's the that, like these stories are just really weird, 
the human elements to them are weird. Um, it's just weird, man. It's just very weird. They are really weird. And I, I like that about them. They don't really, well, I, I, I guess I would say the, the, the latter story, the, the carrier experience sort of has more in common with, I think, um, what people think of when, when, when they sort of think of like uh, traditional UFO sort of contactee um, narratives, but that Meriwether one, you know, like there are a couple of stories that, that, that I'm reminded of. I, you know, I think there was one of uh, Bud Hopkins's cases that sort of involved like men trying to fix their UFO in a park in, in, in New York, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so like, it's not unheard of, but it's still weird it's weird yeah. as hell. And then like all of the, the, um, you know, physical evidence that's described. And of course it all goes missing in both cases. And then there are psychic elements, um, which, you know, don't even necessarily make any sense. And, and that to me, I think is, especially in, in that, that carrier case uh, specifically, when you look at how little sense, um, the, the, the psychic elements of that case make, you know what I mean? It, it clearly wasn't, uh, like, a, a, a case of storytelling, you know, like they, mm. they could have made up a, a way more cohesive story than that. If that's what they were trying to do, you know, like, why would they, uh, invent a detail about hearing a part of a conversation they weren't even involved in, you know, mm. like that, that kind of random stuff to me, it it seems credible to where I think they were definitely experiencing something. Because again, why would they make that up? That that makes no sense. The other thing I found interesting about both of these cases, they were all so young. Like you know, yeah. the, the the carriers are in their early twenties. Uh, uh, Mary met like Meriwether was also like I think twenty, um, and that's you know that that seems unusual to me. You know, and obviously this is a sample size of two cases, but um, it was just a, 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 an interesting coincidence because I don't often come across, uh, you know, that many witnesses in, in their early 20s who either, um, you know, have experienced a lot of stuff or, uh, or or want to talk about it. And so that was just a, that was a really interesting detail to me, especially because, like, I guess you know, living in the, the 21st century too, like they're, they're in their early twenties. They're all married. They have homes and careers. I was like, dude, when I was 22, I don't, I don't know what I was doing. It, it definitely wasn't that honestly. Why do these people have their lives together better than I do? That's the real question. Yeah, yeah. That's the mystery. We need to get to the bottom of that. Yeah, that is the true mystery at the heart of these cases is why do these people have their shit together more so than any of us have ever had our shit together at such a young age. That is, uh, you know, to ponder for another time. But uh, Tobias, thank you for coming on the podcast and and like discussing these two very strange cases. So. Um, what do you have going on over at the Singular 14 Society and where can people follow along with what you're doing? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, Rob, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, if anybody's interested in the Singular 40 and Society, you can check us out at our website, singular40and.com or across uh, most of social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, 
uh, Tumblr, Instagram. And, you know, if you're interested enough in what we do that you want to be a part of it, you can find us at uh, patreon.com slash singular 40. Yes. And uh, if you're interested in following along with what we're doing at the Our Strange Skies podcast, uh, you can find us on most podcasting apps. Uh, and if you'd like to help us out, leaving a rating and review definitely helps. You can do that on Spotify now. You can leave ratings. It's great. You know, sharing the show with a friend helps out. Uh, you know, talking about this episode with friends and, and, and recommending it totally helps us out. Uh, and uh, if you want to support us monetarily, head on over to patreon.com slash your UFO guy, where for $3 a month, You'll get early access to the regular episodes like this one, and you'll get access to bonus episodes as well. Um, you know, there are other projects that I am a part of, and you can find out more about those in the show notes. Uh, just check out my link tree there. Uh, special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, as the intro and outro to this program, and to the great Desdemona for designing our logo. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over the skies of Southern New York. In gray, we trust. Yeah.